Magnus Podcast, episode 27. It's science. Believe it. Accept it. Trust it. Follow it. Science. The ultimate authority in the modern age. But what is science? Seems like we use this term a lot lately without really knowing what we're talking about. In today's episode of the Magnus Podcast, we're going to drop back in on an eight-week class taught by Professor David Arias on natural philosophy. And through the lens of Aristotle's physics, we're going to get a much deeper understanding and appreciation for what this thing called science is. I especially recommend you to stick around to the end of the podcast, where Dr. David Arias is going to present a rather uh, elucidating understanding of the four causes, something that are often misunderstood, especially. Stick around for that. Also, if you want to join one of these classes live, check out magnusinstitute.org. Sign up for the fellowship. It's completely free. It always will be. It's live. It's interactive. And our fellows are really enjoying it. Become one of them today at magnusinstitute.org. If you're interested in more along these lines, I do recommend episode three on the scientific revolution and its upshot for philosophy. That's with Dr. Joseph Zapata. And then, of course, Magnus Podcast, episode number eight, Aristotle's Categories and You with Dr. Joseph Hatrip. Both of those you might find complementary to this subject matter. Without further ado, here's Dr. David Arias on science. Well, in, in this, uh, this fourth class that we have together, uh, this will be the, the first of two classes that will will dedicate to considering the principles of, of natural science, or you could say the principles of, of natural philosophy. For the time being, I'm using those terms more or less interchangeably. And uh, we'll see how much we get through tonight. So just in, in terms of the reading that, that I, I sent out to you guys and so on, uh, it, it would be maybe ideal if we're able to get through the first six chapters from book two of, of Aristotle's physics. But if we don't, that's not a deal breaker uh, in any way. And we can always pick up some of that material uh, next week. But anyways, the plan is to dedicate this class and next class to a consideration of the principles of natural science. Now, I, I think it'd be good for us to, to start by going back to how the physics as as a whole is divided up. I, I believe that I, if memory serves, I should say, I, I mentioned to you guys very early on that the very first uh, division that St. Thomas makes when he looks at the physics as a whole is, is the following. He divides Book 1, Chapter 1 off from everything else. And, and the reason he does that is because book one, chapter one, as we saw, it contain it contains uh, the the order of proceeding, the ordo procedendi, as St. Thomas calls it. 
So he tells us how we're going to go forward in the science. And then after that, he, he begins to follow that order. He, he goes forward uh, in the science. So that's the very first division that he makes when, when St. Thomas looks at the physics as a whole. All right, given that, you might ask the question, well, how is this everything else divided up? If all we know is that book one, chapter one is divided off from everything else, how is this everything else divided up? In other words, how does St. Thomas divide book one, chapter two to the end of book eight? Well, I'm not going to give you the, the full story, but let's, let's, let's begin that story by saying that the first cut that he makes is is one wherein he divides off all of the rest of book one and all of book two from everything after it. So in other words, after setting apart book one, chapter one, St. Thomas says, well, then we should, we should take book one, chapter two, through the end of book one, plus all of book two, take that as one chunk and set it apart from everything else, from book three, all the way through the end of, of book eight. Why does he do this? Well, simply because that remaining part of book one, all of it, and all of book two contains uh, Aristotle's treatment of first principles. And in everything else, in everything from book three all the way through book eight, Aristotle proceeds to determine various things about the subject matter of natural philosophy, which we know is ens mobile or mobile being. So now we know that, uh, that we have to, okay, so if we have that division in mind, now, now we know that we have to, to, to look at the remainder of book one and book two and ask ourselves, okay, well, how do we subdivide this? And that's going to be the chunk that we're going to be concerned with for the time being. And then we'll get into book three and following later on, and we'll look at more of the division of that part later on. Okay, so how do we deal with, with uh, book one, chapter two, through the end of book two? How do we divide that up? Well, quite simply, uh, we, we cut it right at the beginning of book two. So we look at the remainder of book one as one chunk, and all of book two as another chunk. Why do we make the division there? Well, because book one deals with the first intrinsic principles of the subject of natural philosophy, namely mobile being. As St. Thomas puts it, book one is de principis rerum naturalium, Book one is about the principles of natural things. And I think we saw this borne out, especially, especially last class, but even before that, we saw this borne out to some extent. But especially last class, when we got to the, the first intrinsic causes or the first intrinsic principles of natural things, of mobile beings. And we saw that they consist in first matter, pure passive potency, and its uh, correlative principle substantial form. Okay, so basically all of book one is about the, the principles and causes, the first intrinsic principles and causes of the very subject matter of natural philosophy, mobile being. By contrast, book two 
St. Thomas says, deals with the first principles of natural science. Or we could say deals with the first principles of the science of natural philosophy. As St. Thomas puts it, book two is De Principiis Scienciae Naturalis. It's about the principles of natural science. So you can see that while both of these books are about first principles, it's important for us to understand, I think, the difference between uh, the two sorts of first principles that these books are dealing with. Basically, St. Thomas is telling us, following Aristotle, that there are first principles of things themselves, and then there are first principles of our understanding and knowledge of things themselves. And these two sets of first principles are not altogether the same. And that's why we have one book dedicated to one of those sorts of principles and another book dedicated to the other sort. Now, I, I think it might be helpful for us to, to think for a few moments about some examples of, of this distinction. That is to say, the distinction between principles of things themselves and principles of our knowledge of, of things themselves. Why don't we why don't we begin by kind of going into the the realm of, of things that we make? Okay, if if we talk about things that we make, we can say there's a difference between understanding some of the principles of an artifact itself and understanding some of the principles of, of how to make that artifact. Let's take a just an everyday example. Of this, of this distinction. So, so let's say you, know, you get up in the morning and you want to make an omelet for breakfast. Okay, well, it's one thing, I think, to consider, to consider some of the principles of, of the omelet itself. You can ask yourself, well, what are some of the principles of the omelet itself? And there you'd, you'd start list, listing off ingredients, right? You'd say, well, eggs, cheese, et cetera, et cetera. Right? These, are all, these are all principles of, of the thing itself, of the omelet itself. And then you have, you have principles that you appeal to, that you utilize when you go about making the omelet, right? You have, you have practical principles that direct you in, in how to make the omelet. You have to know, for example, what, what heat to cook the omelet you know, on. You have to know how to flip the omelet, how to fold the omelet, okay? Those sorts of principles which direct you in the making of the omelet, those aren't principles of the omelet itself. Those are principles of how to make the omelet, okay? And those are are principles of a sort of practical knowledge. So hopefully that makes sense. Now, there's obviously going to be some overlap, right? And you can see how you have to understand uh, some of the principles of the omelet itself if you're going to have uh, if you're going to have the proper principles in mind for how to make the omelet so these are these are related sets of principles and there's there's some overlap okay but still there is some distinction between the two let's now move uh, to another example of this distinction and let's take this from the realm of science. So, so this, this uh, 
the example I'm going to give you now is a little bit closer to what we'll be dealing with in Aristotle's physics. And here I think it might be valuable for us to, to think about the science of geometry, since many of you liberally educated folks have studied this science to some extent. So just thinking about geometrical things, we might say there, there is a difference between understanding uh, the principles of triangles themselves and understanding some of the principles which we need in order to have scientific knowledge about triangles. What are some of the principles of triangles themselves, which we, which we understand, which we grasp? Well, you might say things like flat surface or plane surface. That's a principle of, of a triangle in order to, to make a triangle. In order for a triangle to be, there has to be such a thing as a flat surface. There have to be straight lines. There have to be angles. Those are all principles of a triangle itself or of triangles themselves, right? And we certainly have to understand those principles uh, if, if we're to know anything about triangles. And those principles have to be there if triangles are to exist. Now, there's a difference between those principles and the principles that we need in order to have scientific knowledge about triangles. If you think back to Euclid's elements, maybe it's been many years, but if you if you kind of re recall in general some of the things that, that are found at the beginning of Euclid's elements, you'll, you'll recall that Euclid, before he gives us any geometrical theorems, any propositions, first he lays out a whole bunch of definitions for us namely 23 definitions. And then he gives us five geometrical postulates. And then he gives us five, what he calls common notions or what are sometimes called axioms. And, and these are all principles, these definitions, these geometrical postulates, these, these axioms or common notions. These are all principles of scientific knowledge of triangles and of other things like circles and squares and so on and so forth. Okay, so we need to have these principles in mind if we're to have scientific knowledge of the subject matter of, of geometry. Now, there's there's some overlap, you might say, between the, the principles of triangles themselves and these, these principles of the science about triangles and other geometrical entities. How so? Well, think of it this way. Remember I said one of the principles of a, a triangle itself is a flat surface. And then you also need straight lines. And then you also need angles, right? Well, if you think back to some of the things that Euclid defines, well, he gives us a definition of plane surface. He gives us a definition of straight line. He gives us a definition of, of angle and of rectilineal angle. He gives us a definition of triangle even. Okay, so, so there is some overlap between these two sorts of principles. But you, you can appeal to some of the principles of the science that deals with triangles, okay, things like the geometrical postulates and the common notions, which you need to have in order to have the science of geometry, but you don't need to have in order to have a triangle. One of the axioms or common notions that Euclid gives us says, that if, if equals are added to equals, 
then the sums are equal. Well, that's, that's a principle of our understanding of the properties of triangles. That's not a principle of triangles, right? That, that statement doesn't somehow enter into the, the internal essential constitution of what a triangle is. No, it's something outside of it. It's a principle of our knowledge, not a principle of the triangle itself. Okay, so, so hopefully this distinction makes, makes a little bit of sense. Again, it's just the distinction between principles of things themselves and principles of our knowledge of things themselves, our scientific knowledge of, of things themselves. And to bring this distinction back to Aristotle's physics in book one, well, in book one, we, we came to understand what the first intrinsic principles of well-being are, right? Again, they're first matter and substantial form. Now, by contrast, here in book two, we'll come to understand what some of the first principles of the science of philosophy, of, of natural philosophy, in fact, are. And just as Euclid introduced us to various definitions, geometrical postulates, and common notions, when he handed over to us the first principles of the science of geometry, so in a similar way, here in book two, we should not be surprised if Aristotle introduces us to various definitions, to various natural philosophical postulates, and to various common notions or axioms as he hands over to us the first principles of the science of natural philosophy. In fact, we'll see that just as Euclid gave us all three of these sorts of beginnings of the science of, of geometry, so to Aristotle is going to give us these three sorts of beginnings of the science of natural philosophy. He's going to give us some definitions that we're going to have to have in mind if we're going to acquire scientific knowledge about mobile being. He's going to give us some natural philosophical postulates, which we need to know. Again, if we're going to have scientific knowledge about our subject matter here. And he's also going to give us some, some common principles, some axioms, that pertain both to this science that we're doing and to other sciences. And these, these axioms, too, will be necessary for us to gain some scientific knowledge about mobile being. And I'll try to point out to you guys instances of each of these sorts of, of principles as, as we take a, a kind of tour through, uh, through book two. Okay, enough said. By way of introduction, let's let's delve into some of the things that Aristotle actually introduces us to in these in these first six chapters from Book Two. I, I mentioned just a second ago that he's going to introduce us. Aristotle is going to introduce us to some some definitions. What does he do right off the bat in in Chapter One of Book Two? He gives us a definition of nature. That's the first definition that he introduces us to in this book. And I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this, this definition, just going through it with you guys. In order to understand the, defini the definition of nature, we first want to, want to think about natural things. And we should probably contrast natural things with artificial things. When you think of natural things, just think of things like you know, horses and trees and 
whatever else, uh, earth, air, fire, and water, if you want, human persons even, okay? And you want to contrast those sorts of things with artificial things like tables and chairs and houses and cars and computers and so on. And one thing that you want to see about natural things versus artificial things is that natural things are, are prior to and more fundamental than artificial things. Natural things can be, they can exist without artificial things, but artificial things cannot be, they cannot exist without natural things. If for no other reason than that, that every natu- every artificial thing, I'm sorry, every artificial thing requires some natural thing or things uh, for its material, right? For its, for the, the things from which it comes to be, for in order to have the, the necessary ingredient, so to speak, okay, for it to be made. Another thing that we want to keep in mind when we contrast natural things with artificial things is that each natural thing is called natural from the fact that it has a nature. Okay, so if we call a human person a natural thing, a dog a natural thing, an oak tree a natural thing, what we're, what we're doing there is we're at least implicitly affirming that the human person has a nature, the dog has a nature, the oak tree has a nature. And it, it's, it's precisely this sort of thing that we call a nature in the man, in the, in the dog, in the oak tree, that Aristotle wants to define here, that, that he will define here. So I, I point this out because I want you to see that here Aristotle is not defining some sort of overarching principle like what we call mother nature. You know, some people will speak of, of mother nature, mother nature as maybe somehow determining uh, that the storm happens now, that this earthquake happens later, and so on and so forth. We're not looking at some overarching uh, principle here. We're looking at, or we're trying to understand what this principle is in in you, in me, in the dog outside that we call a nature, in virtue of which you and I and the dog outside can can be called natural things. Okay, so that's that's really what we're trying to get at. What exactly is the nature present in each natural thing? That's the question that we want to ask. And Aristotle shows us what this consists in, and, and he does so by way of argument. And, and here's one way in which you can present the argument, I think, that he gives. He says, basically, nature is, is that in natural things whereby they differ from artificial things as such. Again, nature is that in natural things whereby they differ from artificial things, insofar as they're artificial things. But that in natural things whereby they differ from artificial things as such is an intrinsic principle of motion and rest. Therefore, nature is an intrinsic principle of motion and rest. Let me, that's kind of abstract, it's kind of general, so so let me, let me, concretize that argument in terms of an example, 
let's let's say you go to wash dishes after after supper, and instead of using the dishwasher, you fill up the sink with with water, and then you you throw into the sink two spoons, a wooden spoon and a metal spoon. And what happens? The one floats and the one sinks. And you ask, well, why does the one float and the other sink? Well, it, it, it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that they're spoons, right? Because they agree in being spoons. So it's not insofar as either of them is an artificial thing that the one has this motion and the other has that motion, okay? Rather, the difference in their respective motions is, is, is rooted in the fact that they're made out of different natural things. The one's made of wood, the other's made of metal. And what that helps you to see then is that, is that in the wooden spoon, there's a principle, an intrinsic principle, of upward movement. In the metal spoon, there's an intrinsic principle of downward movement. Okay, and that, and, and those principles are, are in those spoons, again, insofar as they're made out of those respective materials. Okay, so the wooden spoon, as far as it's wooden, is borne upward, and the metal spoon, as far as it's metal, is, is borne downward. And if you look around in the natural world, you see that that natural things, things that have natures, they have within themselves intrinsic principles of motion and rest. And in fact, we can go beyond that and say, from the argument that we've just looked at, their, their natures are those intrinsic principles of motion and rest. Now, I think it's really important for us to to understand here that when we say that each natural thing has within itself an intrinsic principle of motion rest, we're, we're not saying that, that each natural thing is a, a self mover. We're not saying that, right? We're just saying each natural thing has an intrinsic principle of movement and rest. Okay. Some, some natural things, are, are self-movers, others are not. So you might say the, the bee, in virtue of, of his bee nature, he has a, a principle whereby he's able to move himself in this way or that way. The piece of wood that's thrown into the water, okay, it has a nature, and in virtue of that nature, it, it is moved upward in the water, not downward. It doesn't move itself up. It is moved up. Maybe it's pushed up by the water or whatever, but there's, there, there's some principle in it in virtue of which it is borne upwards. And likewise, with the piece of metal that's thrown into the water, in virtue of being metal, it's borne downwards. It doesn't move itself downwards. It is moved downwards. By, by what what causes? Well, you don't have to be able to answer that question. You may say, well, gravity is involved, whatever we call gravity. I mean, that's involved, certainly. But 
you don't have to know the full story in order to see that in virtue of being metal, it's borne downwards, it's moved downwards, whereas in virtue of the piece of wood being wood, it's borne upwards. Okay, so again, if you look out at the natural world, you see that every natural thing, everything that has a nature, in having a nature, it has within itself an intrinsic principle of movement and, and rest. Now, Aristotle goes, goes, goes farther. After defining for us nature, he helps us to see that, that nature is both matter and form. But, he says, it's more form than matter. Okay? So, in other words, after Aristotle defines nature for us, after he shows us what nature consists in, he then goes back to those principles which constitute a natural thing, those principles that we discovered uh, last class in book one, substantial form and first matter. And, and he tells us that, that those, those principles in a natural thing are principles of a natural thing's movement and rest. But, but form is more a principle of a natural thing's movement and rest than is matter. And I just want to bring up the text just so we can kind of see where he says this. He says this in the second half of chapter one of book two. The line number is, it's right around, let's see, 193A, about 32, right at that paragraph break. I'll just read some of the text. He says, In another way, nature is the form and the species according to account. So he's already shown that nature is matter. Now he's showing us that nature is form. For just as art is said to be what is according to art and the artistic, so too nature is said to be what is according to nature and the natural. We would not yet claim in the former case that is, when, when we talk about art, that the bed has anything according to art if it is only a bed potentially and had not yet the species of a bed, nor that it is art, and neither would we do so in things constituted by nature. For what is potentially flesh or bone does not yet have its own nature before it takes on the species according to account by which, when defining, we say what flesh or bone is, nor is it yet by nature. Okay, so there I think what he's, what he's pointing out is a certain likeness between uh, what, what is the case in the realm of art and what is the case in the realm of, of natural things. He's, he's saying something like this. Let, let's say that you go to the store and, and you buy... And, and you buy one of those, uh, you know, bed frames that you that you assemble, right? So it comes in a box. You bring it home. You dump out the con the, the contents of, of of the box on the floor, and you say, "Behold, a bed." No, you you don't, right? You wouldn't. I mean, you could say, well, in a certain sense, it's a bed. This this pile of materials on the floor is, in some sense, a bed. But it's not a bed, simply speaking. Why not? Because it's only a bed, potentially. It doesn't have the, the form of a bed yet. By form of a bed, we mean 
the, the parts, even though they're all there, ready to be assembled, they don't have the order that the parts of a bed have, okay? And it's only once that order has been introduced into those parts that you say, oh, now, now there's a bed. Now there's a bed simply speaking, okay? So you see in the realm of art that, that form gives more the nature of the artifact to the artifact than, than does the matter. And Aristotle is saying there's something similar that occurs in the realm of, of natural things, right? So if, if you have these, these, these substances maybe that, that can become human flesh or human bone, you know, if you have your, your, your dinner on your dinner plate, well, that stuff that's there on the dinner plate, the spaghetti or whatever, that can become human flesh and human bone. But you wouldn't say, well, right now it's human flesh and human bone. No, only Anaxagoras would say that. So you, you say, no, it's human flesh and human bone, potentially. And it's only once the, the substantial form of a man gets introduced into the matter that underlies the, the, the spaghetti that you now have human flesh and human bone. Or a more normal way to put that would be to say it's, it's only once the, the, the matter that's in the spaghetti gets incorporated into the human person and is now informed by the, the soul of the human person that you now have human flesh and human bone, simply speaking. Okay? So, so just, as, just as something is an artifact more from the form of the artifact than from the matter, uh, so too, something is a natural thing of a certain kind, more from having the form of that natural thing than the matter of that natural thing. And so, so this Aristotle tells us uh, is, is a, an indication for sure, a kind of proof that the form of a thing is more its nature than its matter. All right, so hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. So we have the definition of nature, and we also see what principles in a natural thing that definition of nature answers to, so to speak. Now, you can see here how right at the outset of, of book two, Aristotle is making a, a great use, I mean, very significant use of the principles that, that he discovered in book one. As, as the great Thomistic commentator John of St. Thomas teaches, here at the outset of book two, Aristotle is considering the very same principles which he considered in book one, namely first matter and substantial form. But here in book two, he's considering them insofar as they are principles of movement and rest within a natural substance. Whereas in book one, Aristotle considered first matter and substantial form as principles from which natural substances come to be and continue to be once they are. Okay. So in other words, he's considering these very same, uh, these very same intrinsic first principles, substantial form and first matter in these two books, but he's considering them in different ways. In book one, he considered them as, as principles of 
the being, you might say, of a natural substance. Here he's considering them as the principles of movement and rest of a natural substance. Okay, let's let's move on. And, and, and if you guys want to, we can definitely come back to, uh, to anything in, in chapter one in the, in the discussion part of, of the class. I want to move on to the causes a bit. Let's just see how far we can get with those. I'm skipping over chapter two, just just for uh, the sake of brevity. Chapter two is important, and in chapter two, one of the things that Arsal does is he contrasts natural philosophy with mathematics. But we could easily get lost in there, and I want to resist that temptation. So we're going to leapfrog over chapter two, go into chapter three. And in chapter three, Aristotle uh, treats of the causes. And... We're interested in causes here because natural philosophy is a science and science is a certain knowledge of things through their proper causes. And so you can see that, uh, that we're going to have to know something about the causes if we're to engage in the science of natural philosophy. Now what Aristotle does is, is he first teaches us a number of general things about the causes, and then he goes on to show us which causes the natural philosopher utilizes in, in giving his demonstrations about, about ens mobile, about mobile being. So we'll, we'll look for the time being just at, at some of these general things uh, that he says about causes. Now, generally speaking, uh, a cause, here's the, kind of the general definition of cause, okay? Generally speaking, a cause is that on which something depends in order to come to be or in order to be. A cause is that on which something depends in order to come to be or in order to be. Now, it's important to note that the or there, okay, the word or in that definition is not an exclusive or, okay? That is to say, sometimes you'll have a cause which is that on which something depends both in order to come to be and in order to be. And we've already seen instances of some of those sorts of causes. Okay, let's, let's, let's take an example that I gave you a few moments ago. So, so say you, you, you buy that, that bed frame in the box, right? And you, you, you take, you take the, the building materials, the, the parts of the, the bed frame out of the box and, and you assemble the bed frame. Okay. Well, let's say it's, it's a bed frame made out of wood. Well, the, the wood there is, is required in order for the bed frame to come to be. And it's required in order for the bed frame to be right. So you can say the wood is that on which, the bed frame depends in order to come to be and in order to be. So the wood is a cause both of the becoming and of the being of the bed frame. Now, that being said, sometimes you'll have causes that are, that are, are simply the cause of the coming to be of something, but not the cause of the being of that something. So if I assemble the bed frame, the wooden bed frame, I'm, I'm a cause on which the, the coming to be of the bed frame depends, 
right? If I start, if, sorry, if I, if I stop assembling the bed frame, well, then the bed frame doesn't get built. Okay, so I'm, so I'm needed for the bed frame to come to be. But then once it's put together, I'm no longer needed for it to be. Okay, I can leave the room, I can do whatever, and the bed frame is totally unaffected. Its being, its existence is unaffected. All right. So hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. I, I just want you guys to make sure you note that, that that or there is not an exclusive or. Now, as many of you guys are, are familiar with, Aristotle uh, goes on to distinguish four different kinds of causes. Okay, these are the, the famous four causes, right? And they go by different names. Some people will just call them matter, form, maker, and end. That's an easy way to, to name them. Matter, form, maker, and end. The, the longer terms that they usually go by or names that they usually go by are material cause, formal cause, and then the third one is efficient or agent cause, and the last one is final cause. The third cause, I, it, it has those two names, efficient and, and agent cause. I, I think it's important for graduates of Thomas Aquinas College to realize that, that outside of the walls of Thomas Aquinas College, almost everyone in the world refers to that third cause as the efficient cause. Inside the walls of Thomas Aquinas College, you almost exclusively hear the term agent cause. St. Thomas Aquinas uses both of those terms. But anyways, I, I throw that out there so that, so that the graduates of Thomas Aquinas College in this class are not, are not scandalized when they hear uh, other people talking about the efficient cause. Okay, that, that is an acceptable term. <laughs> so, all right, the material cause, the formal cause, the efficient slash agent cause, and the final cause. Aristotle goes through, uh, through all of these uh, in chapter 3, and, and he, goes, he goes through them uh, in, in that order that I just mentioned to you guys. I don't know how much time we need to spend on, on these particular uh, sorts of causes. Maybe I'll just throw out uh, a few examples and, and we can move on. I think probably most of you guys are pretty familiar with, with this teaching. If, if we take an example of the coming to be of, of an artifact, you can, you can pretty easily see each of these different sorts of causes at work. So if, if, if you say that you have uh, something like a, a potter, let's say you have, have someone who who takes wet clay and he puts that on, on his potter's wheel and, and he fashions a, a clay vase that he's then going to go ahead and yes, uh, heat in the oven, kind of bake in the oven and make a pot out of. Well, in this case, you'd say the clay 
is the material cause of, of the pot. What's the formal cause? It's, it's the shape of the pot that the potter introduces into the wet clay. The potter himself is the efficient cause or the agent cause. And the final cause is that at which he, the potter, is aiming in this process. Okay, it's, it's the good that he's aiming at. It's, it's that for the sake of which he's giving the shape to the clay. Okay, that's the final cause in this case. Now, let me do this. Uh, let, let's go through maybe at least one distinction under each of these four sorts of causes. There, there are multiple distinctions and divisions that, that are located under each of these different species of causes. We've seen some of these already, but it might be helpful to, to bring them together here. Under, under the heading of material cause, we've, we've already seen the distinction between what philosophers will sometimes call secondary matter versus primary matter or first matter. In an accidental change, as we saw in book one, you always have some substance or substances that underlie that accidental change. So in the coming to be of the pot, the clay is a substance that underlies that change. And that change, excuse me, is an accidental change. Okay. Whenever you have a substance that underlies a change, that substance is referred to as, as secondary matter. Why is it referred to as secondary matter? Well, because it, the substance that it is, has a material principle in itself, okay, that is more fundamental than, than it is. And that's the stuff that we talked about last class, primary matter or first matter, pure passive potency, okay? And that's the most basic sort of, of matter or material cause that there is and that there can be. In fact, pure matter, or sorry, uh, pure passive potency, first matter, is first. It is the very first thing in the genus of material causality. Okay, so we have this distinction then under the heading of material cause between secondary matter and first matter. Corresponding to that, under the heading of formal cause, we can distinguish between accidental form and substantial form. And again, we saw this, we saw this before, we saw this last class in particular. So when the when the clay gets gets fashioned by the potter, and the potter introduces that that pot shape into the clay, okay, that, that shape is an accidental form. Or when a man goes outside and let's say works outside for a while and and he he transitions from being pale to being tan. He changes from being pale to being tan. Well, the tanness there is an accidental form. Okay, by contrast, when a man comes to be, or when Fido comes to be, the substantial form of a man, the substantial form of a dog, okay, whereby this substance or that substance comes into existence, okay, those substantial forms are particular instances of substantial form, not accidental form. 
And then under the heading of efficient or agent cause, you can distinguish between a principal agent cause and an instrumental uh, agent cause or efficient cause. So in the example that I gave you guys, the potter would be the principal efficient cause and any tools that he uses. So let's say he uses an oven to, to, to bake the clay pot. He uses the, the potter's wheel to turn the clay around quickly. Those, those would be examples of instrumental causes. If he uses any, any tools to kind of put a design in the, in the pot as he's spinning the clay around, okay, any tools besides his fingers or whatever, those would be instrumental uh, causes as well. And then lastly, under the heading of final cause, there's, there's a distinction between what St. Thomas calls the, the end of generation versus the end of the thing generated. In, in St. Thomas's Latin, this is the distinction between the finis generationis and the finis rei generate. Okay, the end of generation versus the end of the thing generated. We can see this distinction exemplified in the case of, of the pot. So you might ask yourself, well, what is the, what is the potter aiming at? When he, when he goes through this process? Well, one thing that he's aiming at is, is having a finished clay pot, right? He wants to have a finished clay pot. That's the end of generation. And a, and a sign that the finished clay pot is the end of generation is that the process that we call making a pot, it terminates, it stops once you have the finished clay pot. But isn't it the case that the finished clay pot itself has a purpose? Yeah. There's, there's the end of the thing generated. What's the thing generated? The clay pot. Okay. It, it was made maybe to hold flowers or to hold this, that, or the other thing. Or maybe it was just, just to be beautiful. You know, it's just to, to be looked at. Okay, so there's, there's that distinction too. Think, think of this distinction in, in another example. Let's say you take a piece of paper or your child takes a piece of paper and, and folds it up and makes, and makes a paper airplane. The paper airplane, the finished paper airplane, is the, the finis generationis, the end of generation. What's, what's the end of the thing generated? The finis regenerate, to fly. And you can see many other uh, cases of this. You, you, you find this, this twofold this twofold end uh, in natural things too. You, you, you say uh, when a human person uh, comes to be and, and is developing in, in his mother's womb, there's the, there's the end of generation. What's the end of generation? To have the finished human person with all of his parts, with all his powers that are functioning and so on. But what's the end of the thing generated? What's the end of the, the human person? to know, love, and serve God, to put it in the terms of the Baltimore Catechism. Okay. Anyway, so, so that's just a, a quick tour through some subdivisions that fall under the, 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 different, uh, the different sorts of causes. There, there are many other subdivisions besides the ones that I just gave you. Those are just a, a few of them. Okay. Now, real quick, let's look, let's look at something that Aristotle brings up after he 
lays out the four causes. He goes through what St. Thomas calls the three consequences of, of there being four different kinds of cause. And this comes up, if, if you have your text, on, on page 30, the first full paragraph, or line 195A5. And here's what Aristotle says. Things being called causes in many ways, so he's basically saying, given the fact there are four kinds of causes, it happens that many things are the cause of the same thing, not accidentally, as both uh, the art of sculpture and the bronze are causes of the statue, not as something else, but as statue. But they are not causes in the same way, but one as material, the other as that, as that whence is the motion. So here Aristotle is basically saying that that you can have one thing that has many different kinds of causes. And I think we just saw that exemplified in, in the case of the clay pot. So the clay pot, it's, it's one thing, but how many kinds of causes does it have? It has all four, right? It has material cause, the clay, it has a formal cause, the shape, it has an efficient cause, the potter, and it has a final cause. Okay, it has, it has some purpose. So... You shouldn't be surprised if, if you find things out there that have many different kinds of causes that they depend on. You shouldn't be surprised if you, if you find things out there that have up to four kinds of causes that they depend upon in order to come to be and in order to be. So that's the first consequence that Aristotle points out. And the second uh, follows right after that. He says, some things are causes of each other as exercise of well-being and well-being of exercise, though not in the same way, but the one as end and the other as beginning of motion. So here he's pointing out that, that the causes, some of the causes, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say the causes because this isn't true for, for just any two that you pick, Okay, but he's pointing out that some of the causes are causes of one another, but in different ways. And he illustrates this by looking at the efficient cause and the final cause. And his example is, is very helpful. You could, have, you could have someone who, let's say, goes for a jog, and if, and if you stop him and you say, why are you, why are you jogging? He might say, for the sake of health, because I want to be healthy. Well, what's going on there? Well, what's going on there is that, is that the final cause, okay, the health that he's aiming at, that good that he's aiming at, is the cause of him being an agent right now, being an agent in act. Why is he running right now? Because he's aiming at the good of health. So there you see the final cause is, is the cause of, of the agent cause or the efficient cause uh, in act right now. But then if you ask the, the jogger, well, how are you going to introduce health into yourself? Or how are you going to become more healthy? He'll say, by running. 
So there, what he's pointing out is that is that running the agent cause is going to bring about the the actual existence outside of his mind of what the final cause or the thing that is the final cause, I should say, huh? So the, the desire for health that moves him to run and then running brings into being or brings into existence, the good of health that he's aiming at. So the final cause and the efficient cause can be causes of each other, but in different ways. And even though Aristotle doesn't point it out here, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas goes on to point out in various texts that something similar to this can be said with respect to form and matter, the formal, the formal cause and, and the material cause. In other words, form is the cause of matter in some way, and matter is also the cause of form in some way. So there are causes of each other, but not in the same respect. The formal cause, it gives a kind of determination to the matter, a kind of actuality to the matter, such the matter is such. Okay, like in the case of the, the clay pot, by the shape of the pot being introduced into the into the clay, now the clay is a pot. It's not a plate or, or something else. What does the clay do for the shape, for the form in this case? Well, it in a sense sustains it and, and supports it. You can't have you can't have the shape of a pot existing all by itself unless it's in some some matter, right? Some substance like clay or some other sort of material. But, and by the way, connected with this, with, with this fact that the causes, some of the causes are causes of each other, but in different ways. St. Thomas Aquinas very beautifully in his little work called the De Principius Naturae on the principles of nature, he points out that, that the final cause is the cause that moves, so to speak, the agent cause uh, to act. And then when the agent cause acts, what does he do? He introduces form into matter. And so if you see that order, you see that, that the matter in a way depends on form, the form depends on the agent, and the agent depends on what? The final cause. And because of this, St. Thomas Aquinas calls the final cause the causa causarum, the cause of the causes. Okay? He calls it the cause of the causes because the causality of all of the other causes depends on the final cause, the causality of the Asian cause, of the formal cause, and of the material cause. They all depend for their causality on the, the final cause, on the end. So that's something that's pretty cool, pretty helpful to see. Okay, and then lastly, this was the third thing that Aristotle points out, the third consequence of there being four different kinds of cause. He says, uh, moreover, the same thing is cause of contraries. For what is a cause of this by its presence? We sometimes blame for the contrary of this by its absence. As the absence of the pilot 
is the cause of the shipwreck, the presence of whom was the cause of the ship's safety. So here he's pointing out that you can have one and the same cause be the cause of contrary things. And he shows us one way in which this can happen, right? The, the guy who, who steers the ship, the pilot, as he calls him, by his presence, he is the cause of the salvation of the ship. But if, if, he's, if he's not present there, if he's asleep or whatever, then his absence might be the cause of, of the ship going under. And by the way, this this uh, this reality that he's pointing out, namely that a cause can be the cause of contraries, it happens in more than one way. So he just showed he just showed us how this can happen when you have an efficient cause present or absent, right? That can be the cause of contrary effects. But sometimes this sometimes contrary effects can arise just from something's presence or just from something's absence. So take this as an example. Let's say you you uh, put out in the sun, so it's a hot sunny day, you put out in the sun your your uh, clay pot okay that you just that you just shaped so it's still very wet, the clay is very wet, you put that out. And then you also put out a, a hard stick of butter in the sunlight. Well, the sun, as an efficient cause, is in this case, or will be, the cause of contraries. It'll be the cause of the clay hardening, and it'll be a cause of the butter softening. So that's another way in which uh, this sort of thing can happen, that a cause can be the cause of, of contraries. Okay, I see that we're about midway through, so maybe we should take, we should take our 10-minute our break. And uh, when we come back, we can we can do one of two things. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll just ask you guys if you if you have a preference. We can just keep going through uh, more material. There's there's more to go through and and chat about some of the things. Or whether you'd or whether you'd rather just kind of push on uh, through more material. I have two quick questions, but not an hour's worth of questions so okay i guess if we want to move on we could do that or well why don't we let, 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 why don't we make sure let, let's make sure we get your questions in and i i also noticed a, a couple of questions in the in the chat on on axioms maybe we can talk about those a little bit since oh, you muted yourself All right. Thanks for the heads up. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. So I, I was just gonna I just mentioned that that I noticed something about axioms in the in the chat and it'd be worthwhile maybe talking about that a little bit as well. And then and then we can go ahead and, and push forward with, with whatever time we have remaining. But I definitely want like to make sure that we get you know your your, your questions in and any comments you guys have. So why don't we do that first then we can just keep going after that. Yeah, so please please go ahead, John Harold. Um, so my question was about um, the end, the cause, which is the end of generation versus the cause, which is the end of the thing generated. Um, I remember elsewhere, Aristotle says 
I think he says it a couple places, something like um, that three of the causes typically end up like being pretty much the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I, if I remember, that's um, the efficient cause, the formal cause, and the final cause. And it seems like that's in the generation of a thing. So, like, man is the efficient cause of the generation of another man. Mm-hmm. But the form of the thing which is generated, this is kind of my question. Is it the form of the thing that's generated that we're talking about? Or the form of the thing doing the generating? When we say that the form and the uh and the final cause are the same. Okay, yeah, very good. Let, yeah, very good. let, let me let me let me begin to address your question by by bringing up one of those texts where where he says this. I think one one place that comes up in in book two is is in chapter seven. So he says this would be right at like one ninety eight. A about twenty-five. So he talks about the four causes again, and and he actually tells us just to kind of give you a preview of coming attractions. He he tells us that it belongs to the the student of natural science to demonstrate through all four of the of the different kinds of causes. Having said that, he says, three of these often come together in one for the what it is. That's another way of saying the formal cause. And that for the sake of which, i.e. the final cause, are one. So the formal cause and the final cause are one. And that first thing, whence is the motion, that is the efficient cause, is the same as these in species. For man generates man. So if you think of something like the generation of a, of a man, you'd say, okay, well, you have, you have the parent or the parents, and then you have the child. And the, the parents and the child, they're, they're one in species. So, there, so there's a way in which the, the efficient causes and what they cause to come to be, the child, are, are the same. They're not the same individuals, but they're the same in species, right? And then he's pointing out that that the the form, and here he has in mind the the substantial form, if if we think of the coming to be of a man, okay, the substantial form, or you could say the human soul, okay, that coincides with the the end of generation. So I hope, hopefully that addresses your question, at least partially, John Harold. So I think what he's saying is that when it comes to the, the form and the final cause or the formal cause and the final cause being one, the, the sort of final cause that we have in mind is the, the finis generationes, the end of generation. Okay. Another way of putting this is, is to say, is to say that the, the end of generation is nothing other than the the form which has been introduced into, into matter. 
and and you can you can go back maybe to some of those those examples that I gave you before. So if you ask, well, what is, what is the form of, or sorry, what is the end of generation? What is the end of generation in the, in the case of the the coming to be of the clay pot? Well, the way I put it before was to say it's the finished clay pot, right? That's one way to describe it. But if you want to if you want to break that down more precisely, you can say the end of generation is actually the pot shape which has been introduced into the, into the clay. Or what is the end of, of generation of the paper airplane? It's the paper airplane shape. It's a certain number of folds. So it's, it's a kind of form that has been introduced into this matter, the paper. So that helps us to see that the end of generation and the form that the matter acquires, okay, those those two causes coincide, so they're so in in the case of those two causes, the end of generation and the form, those two causes you'd say they're they're one in number, but they're two in in account or they're two in definition. Okay, because when you're considering when you're considering the form as the end of generation, it has a different account or definition, a different notion then that same form does when you're considering it as, as the form of the matter, as that which gives a kind of determination uh, to the matter. I don't know. Does, does, that, yeah. does that begin to answer your question a little bit? Yeah, it does. It, it makes a lot more sense to realize that that is only of, of the final cause as, as the end of the generation. But there's something about, there's something about the end of the generation as a cause, which is really confuses me. I don't know if I really even understand why it's confusing, but like, what exactly is it a cause of? It seems like it's a cause of the action being the way that it is. That seems a little different from the final cause of, you know, some actual being that exists. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Were you done? Yeah. I mean, I don't. I don't even really understand my own confusion. So I guess probably I can't explain it much better. But it just seems weird to me, unusual. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe let, let me let me try to take a stab at, at just. Are, are articulating something which which I, I I think is is at least related to your question. So one thing one thing you mentioned, uh, I mean, it definitely seems right to me that that you, you said something like this, or I, I understood you to say something like this that that the end of generation kind of. Uh, dictate so to speak that the process will be you know of a certain sort right and 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 i and i think i think that's right so if if your end if your end is to is to have a, a finished clay pot or if your end is to have a paper airplane or if your end is to have a house or whatever then then the steps in the process to that end which are means to that end 
they they have to be ordered in a certain way, and they have to have they have to have certain uh, characteristics, so to speak, right? If, if they're to be duly proportioned to to bring about that end. That being said, the 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 form and the matter of the thing that's generated, they themselves have to be apt to bring about the end of the thing generated. So you could say something like this, the, the process that we call the generation, that's for the sake of the form being in the matter. Now, why do you want this kind of form in this sort of matter at all? Well, it's so you can have the the end of the thing generated realized. Okay. So if you're making, you know, just again to stick with a really simple example, if 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 we start folding the piece of paper and we make this fold first and then this other fold second and so on in a certain order, if if you ask, well, why are you making the folds in, in that order and why are you making these folds rather than those folds? Well, it's so that you can have a very specific shape of an airplane in this piece of paper. And then if you ask yourself, why do I want this particular shape in this particular piece of paper? Well, that's ordered to the particular kind of flight that you want to get. You know, maybe you want one of those paper airplanes that makes a loop uh, rather than one that flies just straight. And so, so the end of the thing generated, in some sense, uh, depends on, or, or at least presupposes, right, the uh, the form and the matter being of of a certain of a certain uh, sort. By the way, uh, I I kind of wonder if if part of the reading that we'll do for next time will will bear on on what you're wondering about, John Harold. I'm going to give you guys a, an article. I'll I'll upload an article from the the Thomist. And and it's on the the principle nature acts for for an end, which Aristotle treats in detail in chapter eight in particular, also in chapter nine of book two, and it's just a really really uh, important principle. And anyways, in in this article, which I think is very good, the the author talks in detail about about how agent causes. Uh, aim at various ends and how they bring about those ends and, and how they hold those ends within themselves when they're acting. And so anyways, I, I think that might, that might be very helpful. I, I hope it'll be helpful. I, I find it to be a very, a very good article that's, that's helped me understand some of these things uh, better. So, so that's something to look forward to. To learn more, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2020, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated, all rights reserved.